no, you should be a teacher. <laughs> like, it's just like baked in right now. Like, oh, work from home. Um, teaching is terrible and it's super hard. And why would you ever do it? And by the way, it's going to lead to the collapse of the public school system. Like, we should have teachers. We should we should be proud to be teachers and people should want to be teachers and teaching should be a profession that people want to do. Welcome to the Professional Development Podcast as a conversation between teachers about teaching. Uh, my name is Marcus Luther, a teacher in uh, Salem, Oregon. And my name is Jim Mares, and I teach uh, 11th and 12th grade English in Boston, Massachusetts. And after I read Jim's piece that uh, called, sorry, let me pull it up real quick, uh, Build the Compound, that he articulated with ferocity what we need in this moment as far as teachers and i felt like we needed an episode just to go through his thought process about this essay and so that's what we did uh we talked a lot about what he was thinking at different moments of it uh, i asked him to kind of reflect upon it and that led to the question of what do you do when a student asks you should they go into teaching and that mm -hmm. led to some really important reflections especially pretty soon after uh, teacher appreciation week for us to think about how we answer that question and uh, what that answer needs to be going forward. Yeah, you know, I have um, I have almost 1000 followers, actually not, I have almost 900 followers on Twitter. And so I used my massive platform to tweet out a link to a Google Drive PDF of this essay, um, but it was fun to write. And I, I, I don't know, I just wanted, I, and I've had some people text me and say that they were moved by the essay and that, that they were um, excited by it and enjoyed it. So it was, it was fun to write and it felt important. And I appreciate you, uh, you know, being interested and, and sitting down and chatting about it. It was fun. Yeah. So uh, let us know as always uh, feedback and uh, about this discussion, but also just read the piece uh, and you may want, might want to read it before you listen to the rest of this, if you want to click pause, but, or you can read it after, but uh, it's, in my opinion, very, very much uh, speaks to this moment in a way that not very, really nothing else I've read does. And it's worth talking about. And we're going to talk about it right now. Thanks, Marcus. All right, Marcus, here we are again, my friend. Here we are. And you wrote something, Jim, that we're going to talk about this episode. So <laughs> yeah, let's, sure let's just dive right in. Uh, okay. Build the compound. This yeah. incredible thing that I'm excited to ask you more about. Thanks. Uh, what, the, what caused you to, to type nearly 5,000 words about this topic of teachers and the importance of them? Yeah. I mean, one, I want, I like, I just feel okay, I enjoy writing. I love writing. I'm a writing teacher. I studied writing in college. I want to write more and be published. And so I, I wanted to write. <laughs> and I've written sort of, a, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's, it, first of all, it felt important, right? Like, I feel like things are busy, right? Like, it, and it was interesting to me that this kind of, I've had this essays sort of sketched out in the background I feel like I'm trying to do a lot of things right like I just sort of maybe this isn't exactly the answer that you were expecting but um I don't know I was training for a half marathon in Brooklyn I and uh I think I might have mentioned that my grandfather passed away you know it's about three weeks ago um and the part of the point that I'm making is that I've been 
really busy. Oh, and I've also been trying to like, you know, brush up on guitar. So I'm, I'm one of these people who's constantly like, uh, feeling bad about not accomplishing any of the 600 hobbies that I have, uh, on my, my mind. But anyways, I've always been able to come back to writing as a, just something that I really enjoy something that I think is important to be able to do. It, and it, mostly it's a personal practice for me. Like it's an artistic creative pursuit that I feel pretty confident in since I have written a lot before, um, you know, not, not professionally or anything like that, but I had, I, you know, I had a pretty extensive writing portfolio in college and I, um, I was a creative writing major in college and and this type of writing is something that uh, I've been trained to do so I don't know it was just and then a, a, a little bit honestly the passing of my my grandfather I was thinking a lot about like okay clarity and conviction and purpose of what you do with the day-to-day and so and then of course we have the whole context of what's happening right now with education, right? Like for months and months and months, I have seen um, just these pieces about the demise of the teaching profession and how many teachers are quitting and, oh my goodness, what a problem it is and what's going to happen and all this kind of stuff. And there's been, since the pandemic, there's been like, you know, all this like hand wringing about the learning loss. And I just such this, I don't know, so much like passive pessimism about education and no, and I'm certainly not saying nobody, but I haven't seen anything or heard anything or read anything of consequence. That's like, no, you should be a teacher. <laughs> like, every, just like baked in right now. Like, oh, work from home. Um, teaching is terrible and it's super hard. And why would you ever do it? And by the way, it's going to lead to the collapse of the public school system. Like, we should have teachers. We should, we should be proud to be teachers and people should want to be teachers. And teaching should be a profession that people want to do and are proud to do it. And I am, even though it's super hard. And I, I don't know, I wanted, I wanted to write an argument that I didn't see being made by a whole lot of people. Yeah. And I know it resonated folks who've read it and we'll make sure that it's centered in uh, these footnotes. And we want to make an episode. I really wanted an episode just talking to you about this piece and going more into it. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. So I, and I appreciate you sharing the context and of course, incredibly sorry for your family's loss and thank you, but for you to find meaning and purpose, especially the clarity uh, that this piece speaking through and like that passive pessimism phrase is sitting on my mind. Uh, what you just said, cause it feels kind of like we're in like this cloud, this fog that everyone just feels like they're like got their own fog machine, just adding to it. They're like, Hey, here's this fog. Let me add to it. Which mm-hmm. I know I've been guilty of at times too, probably. Oh, sure. I mean, so, everyone has. Yeah. Yeah. Like complexity and nuance begets complexity and nuance to the point that at some point we need to say something. Uh, so you said something here. So I'm going to read the line that I keep coming back to in this piece. Okay. Uh, There's only one way to prevent this crisis you wrote. And it's to convince droves of people to roll up their sleeves and get in the classroom. The only way to save the compound is to build it. And again, the title of this piece is Build the Compound. Can you just tell me, like, the word compound is not a usual word. Uh, it isn't <laughs> the most inviting word. Uh, yeah. Like, hey, you, you know, Chipper Young, you know, potential teachers, come join the compound. Like, yeah. Like, where did that word come from? So, okay. All right. All right. All right. All right. Um, this came in the very end and I, it came at the very end. Like I had, I didn't know what I was going to title this. And I honestly didn't know, like I did not have a good, clear crystallizing idea for what it could mean for literally thousands of people to sign up to be a teacher next year. Right. Which seems impossible. And it's not going to happen. <laughs> like, let's, let's be honest. Like, 
maybe a hundred people, if that, have read this essay at this point, and I don't expect it to be published in any major publication, although I am pitching, and if you hear this, whatever. Except for the <laughs> publication that is the Professional Development Podcast. Thank yeah, and downloads. I did, tw- yeah, I, I tweeted out a PDF uh, on Google Docs, so if you have that access. All right, first of all is the hero narrative, okay? Build the compound. I... Aaron loves Marvel. She got me into Marvel. I've seen all her Marvel stuff. Um, and we have it for me, it was crystallizing. It's a reference, first of all, to the Avengers compound. Okay. Tony Stark, Tony Stark, you know, uh, sells, sells Stark tower in New York city as the Avengers are evolving and growing and, and whatever. Um, New York City becomes untenable for the Avengers. He, Tony sells Stark Tower and builds the Avengers compound uh, in upstate New York, right? And so to me, and, and that, that, became, that became in Endgame, it gets destroyed. The compound gets destroyed. And that is the sort of the final scene within the Marvel Universe in Endgame. That's where Thanos comes down and that's where... Uh, Tony Stark dies and it's like that's the epicenter of of uh, at least like this the the first major sort of incarnation of the Marvel story arc ending with Tony Stark dying that's kind of where it ends is in the Avengers compound right and so in my in the back of my mind and I have a real real hopeful stuff (laughs) exactly yeah yeah yeah. so in the back of my mind I'm like okay this kind of makes sense to me because the First of all, and I think we've talked a little bit about this uh, on the pod, but maybe not like, okay, hero rhetoric is very dangerous in real life, right? Like if you, my dad was a cop and like anytime, just, I, I grew up around that people saying he's a hero. Oh, you, and I said like, they call people heroes if their lives are expendable. (laughs) And I just, I just, I really bristle with hero rhetoric, which maybe is ironic because I use, I I don't know. It's just, I was trying to do something that pointed to the hero rhetoric of teachers because the metaphor in the piece is, okay, well, there's this, there is this very one centralized compound for the Avengers in upstate New York, but I'm, I, I think I say there's a line in there, right? Like the clat, like the compound, which is the epicenter for the Avengers and the control room and where they plan and execute and save the world. Our real life version of that compound is to me, that's the classroom. Right. And so the, I, I, I think I said like a decentralized, a decentralized network of classrooms is what makes up the compound and it is being attacked it's being attacked on all fronts <laughs> uh 55 of teachers you, you we have that 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 poll that's saying you know over half the teachers are looking for the exits um when he got all the infinity stones thanos blipped 50 percent of the universe's population i don't know it just kind of all sort of clicked um, and that's that's kind of how I arrived at the compound idea. Okay, you're talking to I, I get made fun of Monday through Friday for not knowing anything about the Marvel <laughs> Avengers thing, and then now it's the weekend. I'm going to be ridiculed again. So I no, so I appreciate okay. I appreciate you talking it through to someone who understands very little. I know there's something to do with like a fist or a glove, right? Yeah. So Thanos has uh, it, he he has this glove that can hold the five Infinity Stones, which are part of the you know, they're part of the Marvel um, myth. And yeah, the idea is that once they are pulled together, you can, um, you can essentially control reality, time, space, and whatever. And so Thanos's whole uh, thesis is the world is being overpopulated. It's overrun. I'm going to turn it back into paradise. And the way to turn it back into paradise is to, uh, erase half the people and he was like i'm the ultimate godlike figure i'm going to do this mercifully i'm going to save the planet there's not going to be i'm yes i'm going to exterminate 
half the people on the planet, but it's going to be completely fair. No one will feel any pain. You just kind of evaporate and you go away and that eliminates half the world's population and that saves the world. Uh, and that's like the ultimate act of saviorism and mercy. So that was Thanos's whole uh, thesis in Infinity Wars and the Avengers fought to prevent him from doing that. So you, so let's, let's pull back on that. So you, your thesis, especially this idea of the teaching profession under attack that we've mm -hmm. talked about at different times, but this, I feel like you approach it in a different way than we've talked about here. Mm -hmm. at least with your focus uh and you started with the scopes trial so what is your argument of the these the thanos than whatever the, the dude with the fist like mm -hmm. five thanos yeah um, thanos okay <laughs> there you go uh yeah people turning off the podcast as we go the marvel fans no they're but, not this is okay. no they're not trust me okay just making sure Marvel's that a big i'm not thing. offending anyone sorry <laughs> uh but i can talk about gatsby if you'd like but no you're good uh, you're good not marvel but there's gotta be some like parallel there, but in general, like why were you so focused in this piece on the teaching profession being attacked through the lens of the scopes trial uh, background that you bring? Okay. So first of all, Tony Stark, lots of really good parallels to uh, Gatsby. Just going to say rich, very rich New York playboy. Everybody loves him. Uh, you know, a, a brooding search and quest for love kind of on the side. There's a lot of, there's a lot of Tony Stark. Great Spoiler Gatsby. alert. Gatsby dies too, folks. Sorry. If you <laughs> yeah. haven't read it yet, that's your fault. Um, all right. The scopes thing. Honestly, the scopes monkey trial was, I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do with it. I had like, I just kind of sat down and wrote about the scopes trial, just like what I like, just like what it meant to me. Cause like I found out about it early on in my teaching um, shout out to Zach Dibel. I don't think he ever listens to this podcast, but he taught history with me in Mark tree. And he like told me what this was. And I read a bunch about it. Um, and, you know, honestly, like the overall, like the overall political climate, of education right now where what I have what I have been trying to do not just with education but like I don't know within the past three or four years is push myself to contextualize the a current political I'm very I'm I follow politics very closely but to contextualize the current political moment with what has happened in the past right and so like i think to my uh and that includes roe v Wade. like i feel like a lot you know i the whole political thing with roe v wade coming out a lot of people it's it was earth-shattering news groundbreaking news like it's a, a massive change in the way that healthcare operates in the united states the way that we think about freedom and liberty just simply who like which women in the United States can access abortion right it appears I think to some as coming from out of left field like this in incredible intense fundamental change that has suddenly been happening but that's not the case it has this has been a very clearly stated political objective by the conservative movement for a very, very long time. And they have been open about it. This has been clearly stated. The Federalist Society, which vetted all the Supreme Court justices that have been nominated by Trump and whoever else, like that has been a pot, like that's been essentially a litmus test, right? So I guess what I'm getting at is one of the things that I've been trying to do in any within any political moment now that has helped me think about what's going on in the world is to contextualize it with okay when has a similar thing happened in the past and compared it to the past and I feel like there is now a big attack like a big Tucker Carlson is on Fox News every night talking about how dangerous the teachers are and like there's a big 
social media movement that's ha- like attacking teachers. And this is becoming, I, you know, I'm sort of, I feel like I'm sort of watching it become a very important talking point that I think will be a Republican, to- uh, a, a big issue, like a wedge issue in the upcoming midterms. And my response to that has been like, all right, well, when has education kind of been historically in the crosshairs before? And a big moment with that, you know, a big moment of that, which I didn't actually talk about for the essay was uh, the Little Rock Nine, which like, of course, I'm like really familiar with as well and desegregation movement. But I just sort of have always known about the Scopes Monkey Trial and like find it to be just an interesting story. Like the way that it turned, like, it actually was it just it was never about the ideology necessarily of the people involved like the people um in the this little town in Tennessee like they sort of they just wanted the attention <laughs> and like they thought they could make a big movement and create this national intrigue and then so you get Clarence Darrow who's this huge national defense attorney to come down and Um, It was actually never about, and I think I said this in the essay, like, did they ever talk to the kids? Like, did they, like, it was never about what happened in the classroom. Um, And it was never about, like, even, even, um, oh my gosh, this is embarrassing. I'll read it. I've got it. He he was just talking about the teacher in this trial. He was just another pawn in the story dynamic where in just about every moral panic, Every educational scandal, every bitter argument about the theory, purpose, and practice of education, the very last perspectives to be considered are the actual teachers and students. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there you go. I said it there. (laughs) Yeah. So it's just like... (laughs) what we were just talking about in the last podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Kind of. Kind of. And it's just like, okay, we have this big moral panic right now about you know, trans teachers and gender identity. I, I feel like there's this big, really pernicious attack that's sort of bubbling up state legislature. I've already like, oh, and critical race theory, of course, is like this boogeyman. Um, and um, Chris, that's what Chris Jones is, is calling it in his, his part of his yeah. campaign and for governor of Arkansas. And it's just like, okay, we're living in this, we are living in this environment where where schools are and teachers are being weaponized, right? Like as basically a Rorschach test for the parents' ideology in order to whip the, I feel like to just whip them up to vote for everything from your local school board members all the way up to, you know, Senate candidates, whoever's up for Senate in the midterms and governor and all that kind of stuff. And not only it's, 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 it's not only a shame to me that it's not about schools, right? Like it actually is not about schools. Um, And that's a shame. And that's, that's disgusting to me. But the thing that I think really gets to me and was one of the motivations for me to write this essay because I basically the first half of the essay is just me being pissed off <laughs> and I got to and I was like I'm not making a very good case for why you should be a teacher <laughs> yeah. and it's just the fact that there's a cost there is a there is a cost there is a cost to this political movement that weaponizes teachers and says these lib teachers who are going to indoctrinate your kids with their socialist agenda which of course is like not happening at all yeah yeah not correct punctuation of semicolons and commas but the the woke stuff that's the stuff that'll stick man and it's just like it just it has such a profound cost because by design people don't want to be teachers because of that people don't want to be teachers which is what they want and so it's just like positive feedback cycle 
and it's it is it is it is just so i needed i just i needed to put some words to it because it just felt so defeating and i i didn't want to like i didn't want to vent i mean obviously i have like moments in the essay i think where i'm like sarcastic and making fun of stuff and and mostly making jokes but i don't know i hope that i hope that i don't come off as as too complainy because i i i really want to there to have energy be created around fighting back in a tangible way in a very concrete way that says like we are not we are not doing the things that we say that 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 you say we're doing and also not only we're not doing that but like you don't have the right to tell other like teachers can teachers are gay like you don't have the right to tell them that they can't be themselves like you i don't know it's just that i don't i don't want to get on a whole thing about it because I, I don't know how productive it will be but i i don't know i was just trying to put some words to it that were clear in saying no like this isn't going to work and maybe it will work, but I'm going to try to convince people to get into the classroom. Yeah. So a couple of follow-up points, and I appreciate you articulating that. Uh, and I think you're right that at least in this conversation, we can stay kind of focus more on like the, getting the teachers in the classroom. And there's obviously all this other stuff going on. I think it's important to acknowledge that, yes, there's attack on the teaching profession as a whole, but a lot of these political attacks are targeting certain teachers. Right. Uh, and both of us as like white straight men right. are not the direct targets and we're not, we do not feel the impact of those attacks the same way that other teachers, other students are mm -hmm. being felt. So I just feel it's important to acknowledge that mm -hmm. given uh, that context. I guess my question is, do you think that is the biggest issue in the teaching profession right now, these political attacks, because there's a lot of polling that says yeah. that, yeah, they're, they're happening, but they're kind of on the fringes and not as politically effective as they might seem based on the headlines, yeah. uh, including like all, not just Fox news, but like CNN, New York times. Like I feel like media coverage is very good at listening to those who yell loudest, particularly those in positions of privilege and power right. who yell loudest. Uh, Cause like there's a poll that came out with, NPR recently that matches what has been the pattern through for many years, which is that when you ask people, how do you feel about education in this country? They're gravely concerned. But then you say, well, mm -hmm. how does your teachers, your kid's teacher doing? And 88% positive. Yeah. How's your kid's school doing? 82% positive. So there's this disconnect where in the abstract, this oh, education, this boogeyman is scary that you can hear about these things. It's, it, that's kind of effective. But when people think about their own teachers in their own schools, it isn't resonating, at least yet. And I, I worry about that because that gap is scary. But I guess reading your piece, that was the one question I had is I feel like there's all these other issues that are making the teaching profession unsustainable and causing people to leave. I think of this as an add on to that and definitely something worth talking about. I'm not trying to dismiss it, but I wouldn't have thought about it as the primary reason people are leaving the classroom but your piece kind of made it that way. So I'm curious mm. about your perspective on that. I definitely don't think it's the, pro I definitely do not think it is the primary reason that people are leaving the classroom for sure. Like people are leaving the classroom now for large scale, intractable systemic problems that, that made teaching just such a hard profession. Um, I ran across on Twitter the other day. Uh, I cannot wait to read this book. I had, don't know this guy's name. He's a historian, yeah. an educational historian. Um, and he said he's writing a book that's analyzing the cognitive load that teachers had. This is like, I got so excited about it. Cause I was like, basically his whole thesis is it is insane. The amount of time and energy that we ask of what we ask teachers to do and anyhow that aside right like people are leaving the classroom for all of these reasons that i think 
are not connected to this political moment, right? I think it's, I think certainly that the, the political moment where, t- where schools are sort of caught in the crosshairs of the midterm elections, I don't think, um, I certainly don't think it helps. But what I would say, and, you know, it's hard to prove a negative because what the, the proof of this is, pe- is people not signing up <laughs> to be a teacher, right? So you can't, but I, I do think that it could have an outsized impact on people not signing up to be a teacher, right? The only, <laughs> the only way to correct for people exiting the classroom in the numbers that they are now and will be for sure in June, which I think I'm right about that. I think I, think I mentioned this in the essay, like to the extent that people are quitting now, like teachers, because they are just moral and cannot abide the idea of abandoning their classrooms in the middle of the year for the most part i mean can in some states lose their professional license if they do i don't agree with those state policies oh i didn't know that i didn't texas is one of those so just acknowledging that for yeah some some people don't have the moral like it's sometimes it's like their whole professional career is staked on it right which is which of course is not it's not baked into it's not baked into other like if you have a career in technology or law or consulting or what like you it it is it is expected by your employer that you are actively and constantly negotiating for yeah. other roles within your field and that's just not the case with teaching nor should it be necessarily like it shouldn't necessarily be that way but i don't know all I'm saying is that in June, a lot of people are going to quit. <laughs> yeah. And I think that, that that moment is coming. Okay. And I think I agree with that. I think that there are more, I think we say that a lot and it doesn't always come to fruition in the scale. Uh, and I think there's a lot of movement coming, but then the movement settles in terms yeah. of the number of total teachers. I think it affects, we've talked about this, schools disproportionately, the schools and communities mm-hmm. that are, are need the most from their schools often are the ones that feel this the most mm-hmm. uh but yeah i think you're spot on with the exodus that we're about to see and it's going to have ramifications uh long term for sure so, and so but so like what's the response to that right like there there is only one response to that which is to put people in the classroom like you can't i i, I don't know i just i i don't i don't know of any other appropriate response that other than make teaching a really attractive thing to yeah. do. I mean, when it, go ahead, you're making this case acknowledge like your message in the short term is long term sustainably. We need to make these. We've talked about this at length. If you've been listening to us, like we go mm-hmm. on about this, that there are structural changes needed to make the profession more attractive and supported. Mm-hmm. But you're making this message more in the short term saying we need you now to step out of the classroom. So that's just to clarify, you're saying it's not that you don't acknowledge all these structural implications, but you're saying in the short term, the message just needs to be going out there. Please step into a classroom. Yeah. And that, I mean, I think that's the catch 22 that like, quite honestly, I wrote this argument. I feel really convicted about it. And I also, I'm, I feel not optimistic. (laughs) Like I may, I feel like what I was trying to do here is make the best case that I could. And also I don't expect a massive movement of teachers. You know what I mean? Like I would be, I would be shocked if what I am asking for in this essay actually happened like of course it's a pipe dream but why not write it someone's got to make the case i don't know i agree with that to an extent uh one thing i think about now and we're not going to go down this rabbit hole i guarantee you today (laughs) uh but like 
I, I think I have a tendency to look backwards. That's probably where I'm at right now and reflect back on my journey and like the systems I've been a part of. And I think th- what I appreciate about this is that it cuts through that and says, no, like, next year's coming. We need teachers. And I think mm-hmm. there's not just a pragmatism, but an urgency to that that's deserved. And I appreciate that in my own reflection. Uh, Cause I think back, it's like, like, how do we get here? And I think about, honestly, about alternative licensure and the pro- proliferation of alternative licensure. We both came through an alternative licensure program, not just a program, mm-hmm. but a program that le- begat many yeah. other programs. The program. And, <laughs> yeah. In terms of Teach for America. And yeah. like, I feel guilty about that. Like I, my, my first principal said, uh, hey, you guys are Band-Aids. And like, my, I have a two-year-old son. Like, he loves to leave Band-Aids on too long because he thinks, and I'm like, oh, no, no harm. Like, just put on as many Band-Aids as you need, right? Mm. But if Band-Aids are all you got and you leave them on too long, it does a lot of damage. <laughs> so we've learned, like, oh, can't leave Band-Aids on. And I, and I, you and I both had, have had an incredibly positive individual experience. Right. And, and I felt good from year one on in terms of what was happening in my classroom. And, of course, talk a lot about, more about that. Uh, last episode, but I, I guess I'm thinking still about that big stuff. I'm thinking about mm. those structural implications and how we got here and what the solution can needs to be, because I don't think the solution can be, Hey, let's lower the bar even lower than we mm. already have with alternative licensure proliferation to get more teachers in. Even if I understand the pragmatism and the urgency and how to reconcile those two things, this, this urgency in the short term with just perpetuating this issue of not dealing with the substantive structure. Like part of me says like, we just need to have a year where it's like, Oh, we can't open schools because we don't have enough teachers. Something needs to change. Which Uh, has happened. And I, I I mean, I think that's the reality that doesn't set in for a lot of people. When little rock, I forget what the exact number is. When little rock desegregated their schools and black students came into those schools for the first time. Yeah. They shut the schools down for like three semesters. Right? Mm-hmm. Like they they could not handle it and those students did not have school. And I, I and and I just well, not only ahead. that like <laughs> desegregate desegregate the misnomer of the Brown v. Board decision that you and I know is that this was not a, oh, the Supreme Court decided this, we're desegregating schools and there's a right. little bit of dust ups. Decades of resistance, yeah. people moving out of the, forming their own all white communities so they could have a public school that was desegregated. They just totally. didn't have any students of color. And we've right. seen the lasting ramifications of that across the country. And that's not just a Southern thing to clarify. No, no like, for sure. It's a nationwide thing. So I think the the pushback against the brown v board i just struggle when people are like oh brown v board happened and it was all it's like no one no, yeah. that's not how people responded Two, they shut schools down that all across this yeah the response to brown v board was to close the schools down yeah <laughs> and i just that's it's happened before it can happen again and i feel as with a lot of things in the current political moment, like post-Trump, is I think one thing that the Trump administration showed a lot of people is the fragility of institutions. And I just think that um, people don't believe that their public school can close. And I think if it gets bad enough, like you're absolutely right, the first schools to be closed will be the poor schools and especially schools with students of black and brown students, right? Those are the first schools to go. But if it gets bad enough, I just, and you send your kids to public school, I really think, maybe not next year, but it will touch everyone. The school system, as we have already seen because of the pandemic, every American life is connected to the public school system, whether or not you send your kids to public schools. And it can go away. It can go away. And I think that that is something that we need to be really taking seriously in the very immediate term. (laughs) Yes. And we both believe, both of us believe very deeply, uh, that the, the role of a, a school is to open its doors to the students 
who walk in it and to mm-hmm. serve and support them. And I think that central mission, that the bold experiment that we're is imperfect. We talked about last episode. This is where I struggle because it's like, how can you because I think sorry to go off. I really appreciate you naming the erosion of institutional norms in this context, mm. because this is where I like part of me thinks like there are institutional norms that are problematic and need to be eroded, including the power dynamics that teachers hold at times. Mm. Simultaneous, we need to build up the teaching profession and make it incredibly attractive for people to walk in. And I, I know that's a really those two things don't walk hand in hand easily. Uh, and that's where I struggle right now, honestly, because I feel like they're both really necessary and I worry about people walking into a classroom, into a position of power who are not prepared and will do incredible harm to students. Uh, and I, like, so that's where I struggle with this, but it doesn't mean you're, you're wrong. It just means I, I'm, I'm hearing this message and I'm thinking a lot about how to make both those things work together. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I don't know, I guess feels important to mention here. I'm pretty open about my politics. Like I'm pretty liberal person, but I and I also don't necessarily believe in like both sidesism for its own sake, but yeah. we have had some of the most amazing times to be a public school teacher were under Republican administrations. And so there is precedent for that too. And this, because of that, I really feel like. <laughs> you want to talk about the polling for the, for Americans who uh, support abortion access? Like, let's talk about the polling for like, where does your local public school fit in in public opinion polling, right? Like people talk about how Americans can't get on the same page. I bet you, if you took about a poll that asked whether or not you want your local public school, at least to stay open, well, we had that last two years with the, the, that conversation. Exactly, with, uh, right? COVID. And so and we so we know what that looks like. We know we don't want it, but there is a movement. There's a movement. Not, I mean, I'm sure not to explicitly close all the public schools, but certainly to make it not fun to be a teacher and to not support them and to not not do the structural things that need to be done in order to make teaching a long-term profession for most people. So let's shift here yeah. to a really hard question that I think both of us get from time to time. Uh, student comes up to you, former student maybe in college, asks, I want to become a teacher. What do you think? Or should mm-hmm. I become a teacher? Because I, I, that's something that, I mean, we, we have that conversation quite yeah. regularly we're saying that in the context of all these institutional problems and challenges and even attacks that are being acknowledged on this podcast. Mm -hmm. What do you say, Jim? Okay. I'm going to, I, because it's sort of a little bit fresh on, on my mind. Um, all right. The, my I mentioned earlier, okay, so my grandfather passed away a little while ago, but he was actually my step-grandfather. Um, my, my mom's dad, her, her, her biological dad, uh, died in a farming accident when he was in, when my mom was in her early 20s. Um, they, grew up a far, they grew up on a farm in a town called Colebrook, New Hampshire, and I don't think he would mind me telling this story but you know that you know there's a tradition of family farms being passed down and everything like that and they lived on a struggling farm they lived on a very it was not easy but my grandfather who I did not know very well I met him when I was only a little kid maybe not even three but I've always heard this story I've always known about this story because he did not know what to do with their farm and he uh was struggling and there were some buyout i'm not sure what exactly was happening but it came to a point where it became unsustainable um and they couldn't really sustain the farm but but there was there was a question about whether or not to sort of pass the farm on to my uncle um 
And the story goes that my grandfather asked when they were milking cattle one night, they had the conversation and he asked him, they had the conversation about whether or not he wanted to inherit his family farm. And the story goes that my grandfather said to him, if you do not want this life, I don't want you to have to feel obligated to have to do it. I don't want you to do it. He said, this is a life of debt and it's a life of sacrifice. And if you do not want to be a farmer, this, this is too hard. And you, you're going to not, I don't want this for you as my son. Now, teaching is not as hard as farming. <laughs> and that's, but that story, when my, my mom, when we were at Grandpa Joe's funeral uh, this past weekend, and my mom and I were talking about that story, and it really kind of, remi- it, it really spoke to me as this idea of just really wanting to do what you do that is a requirement i think okay so the first thing that i would say to students is i mean i probably wouldn't tell them that whole sob story about about my family farm but if you do not really want to be a teacher it's it is okay to not really want to be a teacher if you do but there are amazing reasons to be a teacher. And the other, the, the flip side to me, the flip side to that coin is my grandfather wanted that life. He wanted to be a farmer. He loved waking up at four in the morning and working the farm. And that was his job. And he understood that the, it wasn't about the money. It was about the way that you spend your time. And I really personally believe in the craft overall in teaching and the idea that, all right, well, I'm not going to be rich. If I was going to be rich, I would have been rich by now. So I spend, I'm whatever happens in order for me to make a sustainable life and to pay the bills and to be comfortable and raise a family and everything I have to work. You got to have some income and you just spend so much time at that. You spend so much time throughout your whole life that to do something that you don't really feel passionate about to me also comes at a great cost, not necessarily a monetary cost, but it does come at a great cost. And I think the ability to wake up and be creative and feel empowered and passionate and convicted and just see every single day how exciting your classroom can be and and the impact that can it can have on students until we just watch that happen day to day that is a, a rare thing that i really don't take for granted and i think um if you want to put in the work to get that then you should do it is my answer. So one, you articulated that brilliantly because you <laughs> still, you, again, I got that kind of my like, you know, answer pre-programmed on this question and it, you kind of echoed it, everything about it, that combination of you need to want it because mm. uh, it's too important not to want it. And it's not sustainable if you don't want it, mm-hmm. but also everything you said about how the ability to earn a living and feel purposeful in doing so is not normal. It doesn't happen all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's available in this position, in this profession. Uh, I think you named it. So my question then is like, that's a pretty high bar, right? In terms mm-hmm. of like the entry point, like, and I personally, I want it to be a high bar. I want right. it to be the best of the best, the people who want it the most, not best of the best in like some like Ivy league requirement, just like right. people who genuinely are willing to give themselves to this job and to see the best in the people around them, especially their students, and to be willing to put that, that first at times, like that's a high bar. And simultaneously, you write this piece about we need teachers. 
Mm. And that that's the contradiction I struggle with a lot when I ask these questions, because I think also it's very normal. You're a student in school. Like, well, what can I do? Well, what's one example I have many times a day? Oh, I guess one thing an adult can do is be a teacher. So I think it's a, a normal starting point of mm-hmm. students. They have a good experience in a class and they're thinking, oh, this is something I could do. And I think that's great. Uh, and I also try to be really honest with them. I'm really abnormal. I've talked about it. Like I knew what I wanted to do since fifth grade and like nerves were highly on edge that very first day. Cause I put over 10 years into like hoping to do this job, but like day one hit, and I'm like, yep, I was right. 10 year, 10 year bet worked. Like this is mm-hmm. where I'm supposed to be. And 10 years later, still doing it. And still, as if you hear me on this podcast at any point, still loving doing this. Uh, and I feel the same way that you do, but I think that there's a tension there in terms of how do we get enough people to do that then? Yeah. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. And I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> I also, hopefully the other they thing can was, read the essay and, and yeah. at least one person will do it. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's important to talk about the positive about our own experiences and to celebrate those positives and, and not live in that, what passive pessimism that we started the episode with. Mm. Uh, but I think one other hard thing right now, when I get this question, I've been thinking about it is that I think part of the, the compensation of being a teacher is a little bit more job security than other positions offer a little like there's aspects mm-hmm. to this that can make a really reasonable life. And I'm not saying the teachers don't need to have more supports and, and compensation to be what the profession needs to be, but it's, it's not in a lot of cases, a horrible situation in terms of the salary in terms of the structure and like the, the, the time off is like yeah. there is time off and it's built into i mean that's, that's why partly why you're not compensated as much uh, or we're not compensated as much and yeah are there horrendous hours during the year at times english teachers grading essays yep uh, <laughs> guess what? i'm gonna queue up after this podcast mm-hmm. uh, but uh i think that that might i used to i used to just a bake that in like if i want to keep doing this i still love doing this 30 years from now this job's gonna be sitting there for me Mm -hmm. i don't necessarily buy that anymore based on how things are trending as we've talked about in this conversation i think there's a little bit more instability in this work uh which i think is going to be a problem because i think that stability was part of the compensation and if we lose that it's going to be that much more difficult to get the people we want to be in the classrooms to step into them in the first place. So that's kind of the other thing I'm thinking about mm-hmm. is I'm a little worried about what long-term looks like in this work, not just in sustainability, but other factors and what that'll mean to the people who come into this work and stay in it. I totally agree. I mean, I, I think like any, I feel like I have felt for a long time that that I feel extremely convicted in teaching and it is still completely possible for me to decide to leave. Like, you know what I mean? Uh, You, I think we're different in that. I think I might've already like sold my soul at this point. So I probably, you've experienced other things too. You've had different roles. I have. And I don't want, I, I I would say, I don't want to, yeah like i but i feel i have felt you know for a long any interruption can cause i mean you you take the pandemic as a metaphor right like you have this you have a big interruption that's systemic interruption and look at all of the unforeseen consequences of the pandemic like who i i could never have predicted that there would have been a supply chain interruption because of the pandemic like three years out or whatever if you take if you if you make a systemic adjustment in the education system which is the reliability and the consistency that you're talking about which of course is part of why i like teaching absolutely then you could see the bottom fall out right? Like, because teachers aren't paid enough, like, to not have that. So it is, it is nerve wracking to me. It is very nerve wracking to me. I do not know what it looks like 
for the bottom to fall out of the public education school system. But I think we might find out. And I, yeah, I, don't I think want at least to. within the next five to 10 years, it feels like this, the status quo, as much as we've seen, I would argue this, the pandemic exerting the power of the status quo in terms of how quickly people were entrenched in going back to the way it was when we had learnings that would suggest there's different things we can do better. Mm -hmm. And we're just ignoring those because of how much we're attached to the status quo would be my argument. But I think you're right that we have reason to be concerned, especially long-term and what this means. So then going back to that conversation with that student kind of what you tell them is like, I think it's important to be clear eyed about all of that mm -hmm. and for them to know what they're getting into. But I think it's also incredibly important to articulate how much we love what we do. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, like, I, like summers are hard in some ways because it's like, I miss the, like what it means to be in a classroom community. And it's not always perfect there. It's a hard job, but I, I genuinely like get to work. Like just, I'm, I'm excited. I know yeah. I'm being weird. Like I cannot wait even on the harder days yeah. for what yeah. that means. And I'm also just like constantly aware of what a privilege it is to do this work and li like live this life where you get to see students do all the incredible things they do, have the conversations that they have and work with other people, frankly, who are in that same position. Like, it's just, I, I can't imagine doing other work, honestly, at this point. Uh, mm -hmm. I used to give this yeah, big speech when I joined Teach for America. Like, like I'm going to do <laughs> this for like, I used to give like this, oh, I read this Malcolm Gladwell guy. You guys should read him. And uh, this yeah. 10,000 hours theory, I calculated thinking fast, out that seven, thinking slow. Six, 7.5 years in the classroom is 10,000 hours by my 22-year-old oh. college student uh, calculation. So I said, okay, go. I'm going to do teaching for eight years, and then I'll move into like some leadership position. I'll make change, like I'll, everything that TFA wanted me to do, and now they don't care yeah. about me because I'm still in the classroom year 10. Uh, <laughs> sorry, you can keep that in, please. They care uh, about your alumni survey data. Yeah. Okay. I'll get my Amazon gift card, but yeah. uh, $5. Sorry. Sorry. I, TFA, I, I, EVB, yeah, if you're, if you're listening, if you're listening you. I'm very grateful for my personal journey. I, I, I sorry, I, I need to be clear about this. Actually, I'm incredibly grateful for so many things with Teach for America. I, I went a little bit too far there. It's getting late. That's okay. But it's okay. In general, I, <laughs> I lost it. I, I think it's important to be honest about like, I went into this with this like kind of ambitious path. And then just at the end of the day, it's like, I love teaching. I love, mm -hmm. and I know that it's some people are like, well, we need to create like an ambitious path for teachers in there. But like, at some point I struggle with the macro and then the micro reminds me what matters. And I think mm -hmm. of all the people in my life who I really look up to and emulate. And I think of not just teachers, but coaches and family members and people who just daily make a positive impact on the people around them. And for me, the path to do that in an imperfect, you know, imperfectly, and I'm working on every day being better at this, the classroom's the path to that. Like, mm -hmm. like I look back and I feel good about the classes that we've had and impact that we've had, and I'm still trying to get better. And to be able to do that and earn a, a living and support a family, like that's a good life. And I really mm -hmm. am grateful for that. And that hasn't, as much as you hear us banter and cry about problems in this profession and what oh, needs yeah. to be better. And we're going to keep doing that because that's part of advocating for what needs to be done in our opinion. And it's but fun. It's fun. And that, that <laughs> partly this is supposed to be like a little bit of the venting, but I love what I do yeah. and, I, and I just love what I do, but also feel incredibly grateful. And I, I made this, I think I posted on Twitter about like teacher appreciation week for me. I try to just flip the lens to the mirror and I know that's not something that's accessible to everyone, but like, mm -hmm. I just try to use this week to appreciate like the opportunity to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. And I know it's supposed to be about like us getting like the pats on the back and the, the muffins and cookies and stuff. But like, I really love, and I'm grateful that we get to do this work. And mm -hmm. I, I want to make sure that in being clear eyed and articulating all the issues systemically and professionally and becoming a teacher, that they also hear my joy and passion because that matters. And uh, that's part of the story, too. I totally agree. I think, I think uh, 
No comment. I think you okay. said it. <laughs> that was great. Okay. Um, well, Marcus, I mean, yeah, I appreciate you, uh, you know, reading the essay. I, I think um, it was it was it was a good thing to write. I, I needed to be reminded and I want to I, I need I felt like I needed to remind myself in some ways, like, why am I doing all this? Um, and, you know, these conversations help me with that, too. So. Mm-hmm. I appreciate, I appreciate yeah yeah happy teach teacher appreciation week and you know a week later or so but like yeah. i appreciate these conversations and uh let's keep doing them that's the plan that's the plan unless teach teach for america might like find a way to cancel us after this sorry we'll again like i went a little bit too far no uh, we'll have the teach for america conversation in like year 10 of this podcast I, yeah. it's still too early it'll no, happen we, though they can't cancel us that's we're too big we're too big to cancel yeah all right I think, I think, I think we're at the end of it. I think, I think we've spent it. We're there. (laughs) Okay.